Hello and welcome to Spooptober on the Grindhouse Girls podcast. This month we'll be focusing on some Halloween films to hallow stream this spooky season. But of course, we'll be discussing all things spoopy, scary, and strange. As usual, we'd like to warn our listeners that some things that we discuss due to their graphic nature may be disturbing and listener discretion is advised. But for those of you who would like to be spooked out, keep listening and on to the podcast. Hello and welcome to Sidetracks, the unscripted and unruly series where we share with you what we've been watching and whether it's worth your time. And on this very special Spooktober Sidetracks, we're diving into the latest and perhaps last Netflix horror series to be helmed from Mike Flanagan, The Fall of the House of Usher. This is the Grindhouse Girls Podcast. Happy last episode of Spooptober and happy Halloween! I'm Katie. Hi, I'm Brittany. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween! It's Nicholas Ramudi. Nicholas Ramudi is joining us, our editor and friend, for this very special, special episode where we finally do an entire episode on a Mike Flanagan miniseries. Yay! Yes. And I, I did want to say so. I found out what was officially happening. With Mike Flanagan, so there's an article in Variety. The haunting team Mike Flanagan, Trevor Macy, move overall TV deal to Amazon from Netflix. Oh, so, okay. Yeah. So this is the last Netflix Flanagan series, but it's because they're moving all over to Amazon. I, I can handle that. Did you hear the rumor that he's doing the Dark Tower series on Amazon? Mm-mm. I think I have, I have heard not. that. I would be okay with that. He's, I know he wants to do more Stephen King adaptations. If anyone's going to do it, it's going to be Well, they keep trying to do it. Like, to be able to weave all this stuff together, he's going to be the one that's going to be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, he did such a good job with Dr. Sleep because, I mean, y'all can listen to our episode on Dr. Sleep because we covered that. And uh, The Shining and the way he melded both 
Kubrick and King's versions of that universe so beautifully and made kind of like everybody happy without compromising his artistic vision was incredibly impressive. Although, like I said, I still like the ending of the book, Dr. Sleep, better than the movie, but I understand why he did what he did. So they're still both good endings. I just prefer the book one better. But anyways. Yeah. I I think it's very interesting because even as we know, The Haunting of Hill House was kind of like the first Mike Flanagan TV series. And I would say in a popularity contest, it's probably still the most popular of his TV Mm -hmm. series. Now, I know we're very big uh, Midnight Mass fans here. Yes. I think, Katie, Midnight Mass may be your favorite. It's my personal Mike Flanagan favorite show. But even taking the source house, the source for The Haunting of Hill House and kind of creating the universe he did yeah. i think it's amazing what he can do but this is definitely the fall of the house of usher is the most complex when you see all the post short stories the novel mm-hmm. and the poems it all references like it's a lot he did a shit ton of research for this yes. show and it shows where w- does this rank for you on your flanagan on y'all's Oof, flanagan I- levels Ryan, would you like to go first? Yeah, I've already got mine pulled up. I'm <laughs> surprised we're jumping into that. Oh, so no, fast, just, just but... <laughs> in case y'all don't know who Mike Flanagan is and you want to go back to the series, here's how we would rank them. No, yeah. So going to go ahead and preference mine with I've only been able to see the series once on all these. So going back, obviously, fall is freshest on my mind. Also, I saw Bly Manor before I saw Hill House. I'm not sure. Because, like, I hear everybody is like, Hill House is better than Bly Manor. And for me, Bly Manor was Hmm. better. I don't know if it might have also been because of expectations that were set by Hill House. Um, I was more ready. Yeah. I wasn't hindered to the drama of Bly Manor. So I would say Fall of the House of Usher is my top. Mm. Hands down. Blew it out of the park. Currently, Bly Manor and Midnight Mass are tied for second. I would need to go back and watch both to be able to determine which one I feel came out ahead. And then Hill House, and I haven't seen Midnight Club yet. Yeah, it's a tough one. I So here's mine. My, okay, Midnight Mass is the one culturally that hit me in the hardest. However, I have rewatched Hill House like four times. Because I love the hidden ghosts, and I don't know why, but I can just rewatch it so many times. So I think it's technically my favorite. So Hill House, Midnight Mass, but it's very close second. I think Fall of the House of Usher is third for me now. Honestly, Bly Manor is fourth. Because I like Bly Manor, but there was just something that didn't... It took me like two tries to finish it. And not I, I I watched like three episodes and I wasn't really that hooked. I didn't get to the part with the fiance and all the stuff about like her trying to figure herself out early enough. And then like when I rewent and tried the second time, I was like, okay, well this actually is interesting. But it just like it didn't hook me as much. And it also is just very sad. I feel like it was like this. I, well, Midnight Mass is the saddest ending out of those, but like it was just so sad, and I felt so sad for everybody that I was just like, uh. But then I didn't finish Midnight Club. I watched the first like four episodes, and I just, I don't know. We, we talked about this at the last Sidetracks or episode where I was just like, n- it didn't hook me, but it's not bad. It's really good. I think it's better for a younger audience. But that's where I am. What about you, Britt? Oh, man. Uh, So this is hard because, of course, like when we talk about like Mike Flanagan TV series, 
we we know that like they are all so phenomenal and they're complex and they're great and the casting's great and there's these genuine he bounces these moments of true horror and heartbreak but also like emotion um midnight mass is my favorite I've watched it multiple times. Hamish Linklater is like, <laughs> his performance is one of the best performances I think I've seen in a TV series ever. And it's so criminally underrated that we don't talk about that performance more. Uh, I cry so much watching Midnight Mass. Like, it mm-hmm. just absolutely breaks my heart. Uh, Hill House is probably a very high second. That's coming from a soft spot in my heart. I watched um, The Haunting of Hill House with my mom when I was a kid. And it terrified me. I love the 1999 movie, The Haunting, even though it was terrible. I love it. Uh, So I love seeing what he kind of did. And, you know, I still think there's the shock of, like, the bitnet lady. Like, that's, like, one of the greatest twists I think we've seen in recent horror. Uh, The bowler hot ghost scared the fuck out of me. Like, when I'm telling you, little Luke under the bed hiding from that ghost, like, it brought tears to my eyes. I was so scared. And how he floats. Like, that's, yeah, well, he, the floating, like, just Mm -mm. kills me. Oh, so for me, I'm very, like, I don't know how you feel about this, Ryan, but I'm actually touched that, like, The Haunting of Bly Manor is so high for you, because I kind of consider it, like, a woman's story. Like, not saying that a man can't enjoy Bly Manor, but I feel like there's something very special as a woman. Watching that show is very, very emotional, and there's, like, this big connection to motherhood, um, and love, and change, and death, and it's just... It's so touching. Like, Bly Manor has scary moments, but it's not really the scary... Like, it's not scary to me. The scary part of Bly Manor is, like, the unknown and not getting to say those words you want to say, you know? And I think there's something Mm -hmm. very heartbreaking about Bly Manor. Now, Fall House of Usher is number four for me. And it's not because I don't like the show. I love the show. I think it's clever. I love all the big issues it tackles, such as, you know, the pharmaceutical companies and animal testing and ethics. Um, It's so brilliant. But it just, I think it's a brilliant show, but there's not the same heart that I see in the other three series. But it's because we're dealing with unlikable people really? for the most part. Like, that's that's how I feel. Like, I'm... There was, there is a moment in The Fall of the House of Usher that did make me cry, and we'll get to that. But it just, for the most part, you're almost kind of wanting these people to have their comeuppance, I think. Yes. I don't know, do you guys feel that way? Yes. In a bit? Yes, it was fun. Yeah. So it's it's more, uh, it doesn't have the heart of being able to back up the characters from the viewer standpoint. Yeah. Versus the heart of effort that was put into it, weaving it together. Yeah, I would agree with that. I can definitely see that more where it's because you you were not supposed to like No, <laughs> which is the opposite of his other miniseries. All of his other ones, you're like rooting for. I mean, there's always unlikable people, yeah. but like Haunting of Hill House, like originally Hill House had a very dark ending and then he just like changed it because he was just like, you know what? I'm going to give them an OK ending. And then uh, Midnight Mass has the worst, like, not, I love the ending, but it's the one where I sat on my, like, living room floor watching it, just bawling my eyes out, because yeah. it was, it was beautiful, it was so fucking sad, but, like, you love, even the worst people you cared about, well, no, I wouldn't fucking 
the church lady Bev. to just Bev. I just wanted Bev to burst into flames. It was lovely. But <laughs> but like there's only a couple villains in it like that you really don't like. Most people have a sympathetic core. But like this one I was like, man, some of these people I just feel like I know it's like the curse of the rich kids where they're just spoiled brats and they are turned into terrible people. And it's not their fault they're cursed because it's their parents' fault. But I'm also like, you guys could have become good people with all the opportunities you had. Okay, just going ahead and like, we're throwing up full spoilers right now. Yes, yes. Okay. Full spoilers. Um, So jumping, jumping into that, as well as tying back to the like heart of the characters and like there are no redeeming qualities sort of thing it makes lenore so much more of a heartbreak yes i did not think that was going to happen oh i knew because it's like you're like the curse of the rich kid which kind of plays in because annabelle lee talks about like each time i got them back there was a little bit more of their soul that was Mm -hmm. missing so like you could kind of see that but lenore grew up through their entire heyday and you know all the money is there and like every privilege and she is one of the sweetest beings Mm -hmm. in existence and she's like are we doing bad stuff we shouldn't yeah oh i think it's also the innocence of a child because she is pretty young i think she maybe hasn't reached the age that maybe that changed too i mean i don't know but also, she's well, part of her grandmother. But I did not think that was going to happen. I thought it was going to reveal that, like, because the mom may have been had some infidelity issues. Yeah. I was like, oh, she's not going to be a biological child. And then she's going to, like, be... And then I was like, oh, no. No. Okay. Well, damn. <laughs> I was hoping, but I should have known better. I knew it was coming because it literally, like, the scene before Lenore dies and we're full on spoilers. We're, spoilers we know everyone's pretty much dead from the first episode except Lenore right because of the text messages but then even then you know something's going on there because Lenore is the best of the ushers yet he's ignoring her text messages so that was like the the red flag going off yeah. in my head okay I'm like he loves his granddaughter why is he ignoring her text messages mm-hmm. but then you have Verna literally is like your entire bloodline will go before you go so I was like Lenore's coming and that's Oh my god, like, yeah, you knew it was coming. It didn't make it any easier, but you you knew it was happening. But how did it affect you guys? Because it really affected me when Madeline and Roderick was talking. And Roderick was like, you know, I didn't know if it was real or not. And basically, Madeline's like, I thought it was real enough that I went ahead and got a, like, a IED. And it's like, so, Mm -hmm. how interesting that Madeline was realizing that there was this deal that was made and she didn't want to put any of her descendants in harm's way, but that right. didn't stop Roderick from fucking a bunch of different people. Which he could have, A, used protection, or B, he could have adopted children if he wanted to have a big family. I mean, then if they weren't his bloodline, well, then they might have survived. I mean, geez. So, two things touching on there. Uh, one, just the whole reveal of, like, because... From the get-go, whenever you meet Madeline and Roderick, I would have thought their reactions to the deal would have been the opposite. Mm. Whenever Verna goes and makes a deal and Madeline is like, oh, wait, 
what? Yeah. Our kids? This sort of thing. And then Roderick's like, hand me the pen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and he's got two kids at home. And so he's just like, yeah, let's do this. Whatever. They'll have a good run. Then we'll go. This sort of thing. Like, I was expecting the reaction to be opposite. Um, just with how everything worked out and seemed to be yeah. manipulated and stuff. And then it just really speaks to like Roderick's core of like, yeah, he's he's going and seeming like a pushover sort of thing. But his his ambition is there. Yeah. And nothing is going to get in his way to be able to to do this. Jumping off of that, like, I think very much it was you know, with the deal, she was like, you're going to have fame and success at whatever you do. They have the option of doing that for good. Mm-hmm. But Vernon's like, they always choose. It's it's humanity. They always choose to use it for themselves. Build their own empire that's going to waste away whenever they're gone. Like, you could use it yeah. to help everybody so much. Well, it also, I feel like, speaks to why Madeline seems so cold throughout the entire series because she's probably emotionally distanced herself because of that because she is aware and he doesn't believe that it's real he just thinks it's a big joke or whatever and that might be what because at first i was like oh she's so cold and calculating but when she did have that reaction i was like okay so maybe the reason she's cold and calculating is because she's distancing herself and she doesn't want to form attachments because of that and that's it. I mean, yeah, it is really like, I mean, ooh, yeah, is Verna like, it's interesting the whole character of Verna, like, she's like, I don't like this part of my job. I'm like, and they've said that she's not the devil, according to Carla Gugino, who plays her. She's not the devil, but is she a, a devil? We know she's the raven. This is one of my favorite questions. Carla actually describes her as more of an executor of fate for our karma. And I think that I think the dialogue really proves her case because she talks about Madeline and she says, I see who you are. I see who you were. And I see what you could have been standing shoulder to shoulder. And it breaks my heart. And I think like because she has that whole conversation with Frederick, too. She's like. In another life, you would have been a dentist and you would have been a good one. And that makes what you did all the worse. So it's like she can almost, she's assist out of time and space. And because she assists out of time and space, she can see every single person as the absolute best version of themselves and the worst version of themselves as well. Like a fourth dimensional being. Yeah, well, Which I think is, it's probably more spiritual, but, I would think. Yeah. But. Yeah, because this, this has been one of my favorite topics, like going down a rabbit hole on sort of thing. I feel that the the most basic you can get is the whole, is she a demon or a devil making deals? This sort of thing. But I agree with the, that's not what it is. Because for the most part, like, they're constantly trying to create loopholes and tie stuff down. And it's very much like you can use their work against them to be able to get away. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Madeline tried to create loopholes in the contract and Vernon's like nope that's not how this works and so then there it goes into the realm of like okay so she's like a a lawful neutral yeah kind of being sort of thing like you can use this for good or evil I'm just here to present opportunity um so there's some theories that she's like the embodiment of uh fate fortune 
absolute potential. Mm -hmm. Uh, She just gives that access to you. And then you, what you do with that potential is what comes. There's the fun, like nodding at the possibility of her being part of the like higher beings that are in hollow earth that him says that he's seen during the voyage sort of thing (laughs) it's just like they kind of throw that in there to be like yeah it's not yeah they're not like totally well i i appreciate the ambiguity but also like it's a little ambiguous personally my 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 hat in the ring and i know it doesn't match up 100 percent, but haven't heard anyone else saying is that she's um the morgan from i want to say celtic or gaelic mythology Mm. and so the morgan is kind of like the grim reaper meets odin as like the battle spirit kind of thing and like she's constantly going around and like whipping up chaos and boiling men's blood to like get them to fight uh because the more people who die the more that she's able to bring into into her Mm. domain and she's highly represented by ravens in that mythology and so like going through the series i was like is she a morgan are they doing that's awesome oh she's also associated with the banshee why i like that idea the only two things that i kind of think about is one if she wanted to really just create chaos it's like why would she warn like in the Mask of the Red Death, why does she warn, like, the bartenders to get out of there? And why does she try to warn Morella to get out of there? And then, like, even with the Usher children, she insinuates over and over again, like, it doesn't have to be this way. You guys can go out peacefully, mm-hmm. but they fight her. So it's like, why are, why are they... If she wanted to entice, like, a riot, she could have. But every time she's, like, trying to kind of calm them down... And saying, hey, this can be different. And it's them. It's that they make the choices to go out the way they do. Well, I think she's not an agent of chaos. So much of balance. And the reason she exists is because... I just like I Wikipedia while you're talking about it, Ryan. I was like, I was like, okay. So she's... The reason they create her, or the legend was created, was because of the reality of war... And loss and fate. And so I think she's probably there because of humanity, if that makes sense. Like, she wouldn't have... Like, that's her job, to present humanity with choices. And the thing is, too, that she doesn't force people to make choices because she does Mm -hmm. provide Pim. She's like, do you want this? And he's like, no, I'm okay, but thank you. And she's like, all right, fair enough. You know, so she doesn't, I think the reason she doesn't do the bartenders and she doesn't, she tries to get Morella out too, is because she is neutral, well, I guess neutral lawful, not neutral good. I wouldn't say neutral good, I would say Mm -hmm. neutral lawful, like about as neutral as you can be. She's like, I've made a deal with this family and these people, but then also she killed all those other people. So I don't know why she killed all the people in the party. That's probably the worst thing she did, was killing all the people at the party. With the party, we only saw who Mike wanted us to see her communicate with. Sort of thing, like, she could be fucking everywhere. Each person had a chance to be able to leave that wasn't Prospero. 
Yeah, and like, maybe. No, I'm staying at this fucking party. This this party's yeah. awesome. So maybe the reason Chili and showed us Morella. Like, yeah, you're being you're being hedonistic, and you know everyone that adds to the party is specifically selected by Prospero based on like where they are in social standings. Yeah. And it was just all one big gimmick to be able to have collateral on people yeah. and blackmail on people to be able to get ahead. So it's people that they already know do this kind of shit. Yeah. <laughs> and so really it was only the hired help that didn't have a choice of being there. Mm-hmm. Now I'm, you know, I don't think she's a hundred percent the Morgan, but like that was, that was something that I had seen recently that, actually in x-factor comics and done some research from there sort of thing that i was like "Ooh, this is this is an interesting yeah like, kind of well the fact in. that she's represented by ravens i bet mike flanagan was like "Ooh, how can the raven be represented and maybe found that and was like oh mm-hmm. that would be great because also you got to have carla gugino in your series because she's been in oh my god so many of his stuff she's been in she's so good in the haunting of hill house and she's really Gerald's good in Blind Manor and Gerald's game, but Haunting of Hill yeah. House, she's just, it's so sad because she's such a good person and she's such a good mom and such a good wife. And she just, and that house just ruins her. And it's just really sad, which is why I love when you have the dad who talks to her, like yeah. the real her is still with him. And I love that, like, you get to see that, like, you know, like when, oh, I always tear up when she's, He's like, oh, those last few days, she's like, those don't count. That wasn't us. We were great. And it was like, yeah. oh, my God. So sad. She's so good. And also, How about, it, yeah, go ahead. No, I, it wasn't. It wasn't actually Mike Flanagan related. I was looking because um, I, I know her from all the Mike Flanagan things. But I was like, oh, you know, other than like Watchmen, where else do I know Carla from? And this is just a fun little tidbit. So we all know we're all homeward bound people in this in this in yes. GGP so, Homeward Bound 2, she's actually Delilah, Chance's girlfriend in Homeward Bound oh, 2. Oh, that's cute. <laughs> I never knew that. I was like, Aww. what? I yeah. always have been obsessed with grip hair knees is because of Delilah. So, sorry, guys. I had to throw that out that's there because I just found that out. I so. didn't, I, that didn't come up on my search um, at all. So, mm-hmm. But also, in case we didn't, I don't think we said already, Verna is an anagram for the Raven. For Raven. Mm -hmm. So she is the Raven, but she's not... She is and she isn't. And it's... I don't know. She's an otherworldly being. I like it. Yeah. It was interesting. She's an arbiter of of fate, I guess. She's just... It's interesting. She does remind me of, like, almost like Hades. And, like, the... You know, like, I have... You know, like, I have to kill people. Like, I have to do this. It's not really fun for me. But sometimes it's fun for her. But, like, you know, with the Lenore thing, she's like, I don't really like doing this part. Not so fun. So the really beautiful thing about Lenore's death, though, and what I love, and this this was the one part in the entire series that I did cry, is that she's like, you know what you did for your mom by standing up for your dad? Well, your mom has a foundation. It's named after yeah. her daughter. And she talks about... The lives saved. She's like, you know, in the first year, it's this many lives, but then it becomes this many lives and then this many lives. And mm-hmm. do you guys realize? So, Verna talks a lot about symmetry. And, like, for example, Roderick and Madeline, it's like, you know, you guys got to go out at the same time. You came in the world together, mm-hmm. going out together. 
And the thing is, when you think about how many lives the Fortunato company took, yeah. but then how many lives the Lenore Foundation will save. Yeah. You, d- again, have that, that act of symmetry. And Juno's foundation, too. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You know, it's yeah. interesting. Did we all like the fact that it was a pharmaceutical family, much like the Sackovs? Did we like that aspect? Yeah, I, I thought it was really, really kind of cool the way they tackled so many things. But yeah, especially the pharmaceutical part of it. And just like, it's really like shocking just thinking about how many, and even how they kind of uh, frame Juno's story of mm-hmm. addiction too, right? Like, it really gives you like a little bit of an insight to what's going on that makes you really, really feel good. But you're kind of like under the thumb of it too. Um, yeah. I love the I love the animal testing part of it. Mm-hmm. I know that doesn't surprise anyone here, but like that was so in the is it the third episode in the the murder in the room morgue when Camille's goes in there and Verna's talking. It's almost like the chimpanzee talks for her, and she's mm-hmm. like, you know, it doesn't work. It doesn't work, but she uses adrenaline to make it look like it works. Like that just floored yeah. me when I watched it. Yeah. Yeah, that part's pretty awful. I mean, I I got really into... I watched... I, I talked about this, that documentary, All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's on, it's on mm-hmm. Max, if you want to watch it. It's really good about an artist who, because she was prescribed opiates and became an opiate addict, she was also friends with, like, John Waters and his crew. She took some beautiful f- photographs. She's a photographer. And uh, her and her group of opiate addict survivors... And how they got the Sackoffs, because that's the family that owns, shit, the company. Oh, fuck, I can't remember the actual company. But the company that is responsible for oxycodone and uh, getting so many people addicted to opiates and lying to the public and telling them, it's not addictive! Um, But the Sackoff family had all of their names on all these art institutions, and so through... Massive protests for years and years and years. They were able to get them removed off pretty much every uh, powerful art institution in the at least the Western world. So that's it's an interesting documentary and interesting look. It was nominated for an Oscar, but like it was nice to see. <laughs> this sounds terrible, but the thing about the opiate issue, especially in America, is that. The reason people, like, the reason people are getting addicted to, like, doing heroin now is because, which is super dangerous, is because you break a bone and the doctor, before you can feel the pain, is prescribing you opiates. And so, and then the thing is it strips your opioid receptors in your body so you are chemically dependent on it. And it's not one, I mean, it's a complicated issue because doctors were told it was non-addiction forming. And that's why Juno's is so interesting because she did, you know, she was an addict of other drugs. And then she got into that accident and had to take a bunch of, she took the most of uh, that, what, what is their, their name L- of the drug? Ligodone? Ligodone? Ligodone. Ligodone. The most Ligodone yeah. anyone's ever taken. And, but you see, like, that breakfast scene where she just takes all those pills, and I was just like, oh, my fuck, that's so much pills. That is so many pills. <laughs> breakfast of Oh, champions. my God. <laughs> and, but then, like, you know, she wants to get better. She's like, like, how do I get off of this? I don't want to be on this anymore. And it's, like, so frowned upon by her husband. Like, oh, how dare you? You're proving to the world that it's not habit for me. She's like, but it is, because I have to take 
20 pills every morning. But it's, I like that, and it is, this sounds terrible, but it is fun, because the Sackoffs, the thing with the Sackoff family is, now, they overturned, they're, they're bringing it back to the Supreme Court, but originally, the lawsuit that was filed for the victims of the opioid epidemic was the Sackoffs, the company goes under, but the Sackoff family gets basically off scot-free. And the only thing they had to do was listen to people's testimonies about how their lives were ruined by their drugs. But uh, they have kind of brought that back with the Supreme Court. And so they might actually be legally liable because the Sackoff family is fine, by the way. So it is kind of nice. I don't know if Mike, I know Mike Flanagan is a recovered alcoholic, so I don't know if maybe he has friends or someone close to him that has a opioid addiction or has struggled with that. But like, it seemed very personal that and relevant that this is basically the Sackoff family and getting their comeuppance. And I that sounds terrible. I don't want anyone to get you know killed with a mirror. I do. But which was a cruel death, by the way. But. When people are like, do that much damage to the world and then don't see any comeuppance, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a nice symbolic, cathartic moment. So we need to make it. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, they need to go to jail for me. Yeah. Eternal. Eternal jail. jail. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> <sighs> The only really negative comments I've heard about the series is that pe- there's been a few reviewers who say that it's heavy handed on the social <sighs> issues. And I'm like, no, that's just how deeply into our lives those issues yeah. are. I Do you know <laughs> like, how many people? <laughs> it should make you yes. sick how much this is affected and how much they get away with. Or just sort of like thing. the and simple so- fact of like rich, super rich people getting away with crimes all the time. And, and nobody can do anything about it. Or healthcare, how much money it costs to get healthcare, you know? It's very interesting, too, because literally at one point, Augie is like, because they're in the courtroom, and he says something. He's like, there's almost something supernatural about the way that they that mm-hmm. nothing ever happens to them, right? Like, they can't get convicted. Mm-hmm. And then later, Verna is like, yeah, no matter what you do, you won't get in trouble for it. You won't go to jail. You won't be convicted. So it's like, it is actually something supernatural. Yeah. But then... In our modern, in our real world, sometimes with these, like, high, high-end families that it's like, no matter what they fucking do, they can just write it off, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. is there something supernatural going on? Huh? It makes you think, doesn't it? I don't know if there is a Sackoff's habit. Yeah, it's called yeah. money. <laughs> it's money. It's, it's something that doesn't exist, except for what you believe yeah. in and the power that you give it. It then puts you in the position that you make the laws that mm-hmm. you follow um you set up penalties that sure i'll write a check for a hundred thousand dollar fine to dump chemical waste into this basket that was going to cost me five hundred thousand dollars to be able to deal with sort of thing like mm-hmm. yeah that's you know it's net profit in my book and so you make laws that like put people under you attack the education system to be able to keep your workforce done yeah. like it's it's a religion 
it is the supernatural. And then you feed off of people by doing uh, entrepreneur classes. Just pay this fee and you'll be rich too. Like, that's what I like that they had the built part too, because that also touched on that is a huge problem with like the whole Andrew Tate situation and just like the, the, the whole entrepreneurial pay and be rich kind of stuff that is out all over the internet and preys upon people. And, you know, it's like self-improvement. It's a business now. Like, and it's so sad and it's so true. And, and of course the animal testing thing was also like the whole medical testing was so like disturbing too where she was just like yeah this human being should just be a guinea pig and also i liked how verna portrayed herself as an uneducated hick basically like she took on the persona of like basically what we you know a lot of people call like a country bumpkin who's just like very simple advantage exactly and like that is it is so true that people do get taken advantage of that way. And working in healthcare and the way insurance pits doctors against patients and how, like, trusting... Like, I've had people had surgeries with a, a surgeon who was super cheap so they could afford it and they permanently messed up their eyesight. And then they would come to us who was legit and it, there was nothing there was only so much you could do for them and it was just like so awful that that person took advantage of them and i remember one of my coworkers anonymously calling that doctor and getting them to basically tell them all the bad things they did and just because he wanted to get some justice for a a, a patient because he just couldn't believe that someone would be that shitty but then i think that doctor got i heard through the grapevine that they had terminal cancer. So maybe they did get their comeuppance. But I mean, they were literally just hacking and slashing people's eyeballs. And those, there are doctors out there that do that. There's more doctors that actually want to help people. But there are doctors who just care about getting money and getting results. And because healthcare has gotten so expensive, you can make a ton of money off of saving people, which... I think you should get paid a significant amount of money to be in healthcare, but I think they make school costs so much that then you have to pay the doctors so much, and then it does become a business and not a service. And I think that's morally kind of icky, I guess, (laughs) is how I'm feeling. I don't know. But that was interesting to take all of that. I don't think it was heavy-handed, though, because I didn't feel like there were less speeches than most Mike Flanagan shows, for one thing. Not a lot of speeches. It was just a lot of, like, Poe poems. Go ahead, Bray. You know sorry. what? If I, no, it's okay. If I was going to have a complaint myself, so we all know in The Haunting of Hill House, the infamous jump scare when uh, when the sisters are arguing and Nell comes up between them and screams. And, like, mm-hmm. everyone's like, fuck, because it's, like, out of nowhere. This one had, like, three or four like that. And I didn't like all the, like, I didn't like the... Leo falling from the ceiling and then Tamerlane like exploding glass. I was like, do we really need this many jump scares while he's telling the story? Like, I like the more subtle. Like, I like the ghost hidden in the background. Or I like the things that make like your hair stand up on your arms. Like, yeah. You go on, Ryan. Oh, I was just going to see, see, like, that was one of my like highlights. Oh, you like that? Because he's got this, he's got this driving force that's making him confess. Mm-hmm. And the more he gets away from that confession, the harsher they are. 
Okay. And he's just like, yes. And it's not just what is scary, what is jump scare, but what gets into Roderick's mind Mm -hmm. to make him tell this story. So, like, Roderick knows him best. He's his oldest child. He knows I go and I'm representing the pendulum swinging in this clock that's not supposed to work. Get Augie to sit back down. Okay, you're doing that now. You're going to tell my story. Mm -hmm. No, I'm not going to show you me cut in half. I'm going to show you a happy time whenever we came running to your arms Mm -hmm. And you loved us. And then I'm going to split in yeah. half. That was because scary. I knew that's going to fuck that with you terrifying. more. See, that's what scared me. Like that that scene with him looking down like at his child and the child's like the child version of Frederick's like eyes rolling in his head. That mm-hmm. scared me more than just a let's fall from the ceiling and splat. Like, you know, because he's older and he understands that. But then you have Prospero, who's like spoiled rich kid. Mm-hmm. And he's like, the only way I can reach you, Dad, is by showing you all my burns. Yeah. Well, and so he's just constantly in Roderick's and face. Also, and like each one has a different yeah, way of also doing it. Interesting. Perry and or Prospero in yeah. the beginning of that episode is quietly standing in the background. I so there are hidden ghosts, but I yeah. it was mm-hmm. harder to I mean, let, let's the second time I Especially watched Haunting of Hill House was because I heard there were hidden ghosts and I was like, oh no, I have to rewatch it and find them all. But like I really thought there was legitimately a painting behind DuPont. And I was like, oh no. That's that's a ghost. And then he did yeah. the scare. So I think they're trying to not have to do the jump scare, but then like what Ryan's saying is every time he he tries to deviate from the task at hand. They're like, hey, come on, pay attention. Now, the first ghost we see is their, is actually their mother, right? Because that's when he tells Augie to turn around. He's like, I'm not falling for that because it looks like a woman in a long white I think dress. So. So I their think mother, so. I think it's yeah. interesting that's the only time we see the mother's ghost, though, throughout the whole thing. Well, she wasn't their fault. Yeah. You know, I just think or it's was like that, interesting. Do you think that was Annabelle Lee? But she wasn't. No, she was in a regular outfit the last time you saw her. But yeah. yeah. Also, I love that. So, like every every single character is named after either a reference to a Poe poem or short story or his real life. I love that they give the mom the name Eliza because Eliza was both Edgar Allan Poe's mother and his child bride. Which is a whole thing that I forgot about until I went back and was looking at it because Poe married his 12-year-old. Okay, Wikipedia says 13, but I rewatched the biography biography of it and they said she was 12 and he was 26 and they lied about her age. It was very Aaliyah and uh, R. Kelly, uh, it sounds like. Uh, they lied about her age and got married. But then some people say they had a like they didn't have a sexual relationship and it was like a marriage of convenience or something. I don't know. It's a very weird whole thing. But he loved her and she died of tuberculosis and his mother also died of tuberculosis and his foster mother died of tuberculosis and his brother-in-law. So like the Red Death his is... His older brother. TB. Yeah. yeah. Red Death is TB because you you know, cough up blood. But also, like, I love that they have that reference. And if you don't know, I you maybe wouldn't know, but it's interesting. It's also, I just I just wanted to say, because I, I didn't know this until, like, this past week, and I thought it was fucking freaky. Uh, so I always knew about, like, 
Edgar Allan Poe's wife and that she was his cousin. What I did know, mm-hmm. I've always seen like this one portrait of her and I was like, okay, there she is. She's pretty, you know, she's like a dark haired brunette. Oh yeah. And then like I was reading about it <laughs> and turns out when she died, he was freaking out because he had nothing to remember her by. He never had a portrait painted of her or anything like that. So that portrait that we see of her, that anytime you look her up, mm-hmm. you see that portrait, that was painted six hours after she died. Yeah. So it's a yeah. dead painting. That's, that's her. That's her, yeah. but it's her dead. She so. died very beautiful. Like she was a very like uh beautiful. She was twenty four? Like twenty four so. years old. Artistic I think so. Yeah. yeah. Also, I didn't know about the scandal. Did y'all know about Poe's a love triangle scandal yeah but it wasn't like really a love triangle it's just like he admired like a writer or something and then another writer got jealous of that fact so she was trying to say there was an affair going on between yeah, the two so there it's called the osgood ellett scandal and there was this woman named francis sergeant osgood who was a married poet who was friends with poe and who eliza encouraged her to be friends with them and would invite her over all the time so it seemed like it was pretty like platonic and everyone was fine but there was this other poet called elizabeth f ellett and she just was obsessed with poe i think she had written like she had reviewed some of his work and she just loved it and so she she went to be in a relationship with him but he was already married and so she intercepted letters between poe and osgood and it kind of sounds like maybe they were a little bit flirtatious but i don't think they actually were having an affair but it caused eliza to get sicker and sicker and sicker because she already had tuberculosis it's very sad how they figured out she had tuberculosis she was playing the piano and singing and she just started bleeding from her mouth which i do think they should have used that as a reference somewhere in this because that is a really disturbing thing to happen and like is great for a horror movie but also very sad that it happened to a real person but on her deathbed she said that Ellet killed her murdered her because of like all the chaos she caused because she was already sickly and then like being like your husband loves me and not and also this other lady and he's having an affair although I don't think he did anyways it was a whole thing and then also he got engaged like twice after Eliza died, but he's, he just, like, was so depressed, his alcoholism just went over the top, and he just, like, couldn't maintain a relationship. And he also died very weirdly. Like, yeah, no one really what, knows how. Well, what, what, it, what is it that they call it? I forgot what the actual scandal was called, but basically they would, like, take, because he was not wearing his clothes he was not wearing yeah. his clothes, and on his deathbed, he was calling for Reynolds over and over again. But the 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 reoccurring theory they believe is that someone like basically got him all drunk, and there was like a there was like voting fraud where they were like, "Here, we're gonna put you in these clothes. Go vote. Okay, we're gonna take you out of these clothes and put you in these clothes. You're this person now. Go vote." And they would take like people off the street and pile them with liquor, and just do that over and over and over again. So there's like a lot of conspiracy theories yeah. that like maybe. He got alcohol poisoning because someone had him doing that to vote illegally. Yeah. Which he wasn't a very rich person, although he did have success writing. Mm-hmm. But he also was in the throes of alcoholism. And I'm I, I'm pretty sure alcohol wasn't cheaper then. I mean, it was cheaper, but comparatively, I think it was probably the same amount with inflation. 
you know, so. He was, like, the first American writer to, like, actually try to make a living off of writing alone, which was very yeah. highly uncommon at that point in time. It was. And both of his siblings also were poets, but had other careers. Like, it wasn't their main career, but they also wrote poetry. And both of his parents were actors. So, like, it was kind of like a whole artsy family kind of thing. But it's very sad. He had a very sad life. And he had a huge body of work for dying so young. Because he died at, like, 49, I want to say. Or was it, yeah, 49, I think. Oh, no, it was exactly 40. Sorry. It was in 1849. 1849. And he was born in 1809. So, sorry, I thought I just saw 49 and that hit my head. If he was, like... If he was, like, 38 when she died, he died, like, a year or two after she did. And I did read Mm -hmm. that Annabelle Lee was, like, his last completed poem, and it was published Mm -hmm. right after he died. Yeah, and that's probably about Eliza. It could be about his mom, too, but it's most likely about her. But his reoccurring themes are, like, young women dying very young. And And being buried alive. Being buried alive. Mm-hmm. Which is what happens to the mom in this. Which that's the burial, the premature burial, I think is what they call What is it called? And that's... Yeah. Yeah, the premature burial. And is that where Victorine's name comes from? Is the premature burial too? I think you are correct. Let me go to my notes because I, I do have it written out. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, everybody's name comes from something... Tamerlane was the weirdest one, but that is a poem, and Tamerlane, quote, ignores a young love he has for a peasant in order to achieve power. On his deathbed, he regrets this decision to create a, quote, kingdom in exchange for a broken heart, which is... Which is so accurate. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, I was going to ask each of you guys, what was your first kind of, like, um... When did you guys first come into contact with, like, a work of Edward Allan Poe? Like, do you remember? Mm-hmm. I think it was The Raven. I can't remember if I saw The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror with The Raven first, or if I read <laughs> it in school. And then after that, it was The Mask of the Red Death. And The Mask of the Red Death was really, ex- I really liked that one. Even though it was really depressing, but it was, like, the imagery of it. And then, of course, like, it's in the Phantom of the Opera, so as a little theater kid, I was like, ooh, look. Not the ma- The Phantom dresses up as the Mask of the Red Death, and it's interesting. Um, but, yeah, those were my first two. But, yeah, The Simpsons has a tree. The first Treehouse of Horror, I think, has Homer as the narrator, and Bart is the raven. So, a different adaptation. But, very, but, but pretty, it's actually pretty... Uh, <laughs> Pretty faithful to the Raven, surprisingly. Oh, and uh, Marge is Lenore. So, oh. if y'all haven't seen it. But anyways, but yes, that that was the Raven and then the Mask of the Red Death. Yeah. What about you? Ryan, did you want to go? or? Yeah, so I'm pretty sure my first exposure was the Tales of Wishbone oh. on PBS. They did the cask of... Uh, they did. Wh- Wishbone the dog did? What's the story? Which book? Yeah. Oh my god! I did not see that episode. Um. So that was first exposure, and then it was funny because I had also also had exposure to that story due to in the '90s in X Men they had 
uh, evil version of Beast come from the Age of Apocalypse mm. parallel universe, and he locked uh, the real Hank McCoy up in a wall. Oh, <laughs> same way after killing his parents oh, to like wow. replace him so that <laughs> Mrs. Sinister wouldn't find him. But of course, he forgot to ask him what's different about this universe. <laughs> For himself so he keeps being like really weird and the rest of the x-men are like what is going on with you lately and he's like oh uh, no i have uh. a cold and then i th- i think i saw the same treehouse of horrors episode with the raven and then i remember seeing the john cusack movie the raven oh, yeah. uh 2012 i think i've seen that one that, I need to watch that. Uh, where he played poe and it kind of like speculates about Poe's death Mm. and so I just remember enjoying that movie and being that was around the same time that I was um like oh that's a weird death and like the I think the movie had come out that was about uh the Zodiac killer Mm, Mm -hmm. Zodiac yeah kind of felt in the same vein sort of thing and so like all that that's my Poe universe before <laughs> going into this. Yeah. What about you, Brett? So I actually, uh, I was that kid. I, I love English and I was like my subject in school before like I got into theater too. And so I was always that kid that anytime you were given like an English textbook and you were told to read the story, I read the story so quick I would jump around and start reading other things. Mm-hmm. I remember there was a painting and it was like a woman wearing white and she had like blonde hair and she was like in like a, like you could see she was by the sea and there was the poem Annabelle Lee. And so that's when I was like in sixth grade. And that was the first time I remember reading Edgar Allan Poe and connecting. That was like he was the author of this poem. But then the very next year I'm flipping through again in my seventh grade textbook. And there it's like it's like it mentions like the telltale heart and it says har. Like mm. it's like it's indicating it's a short horror story. And so I read that and I just was like, this is awesome. So like basically I just flipped and was like trying to find more Edgar Allan Poe stories because at that point, like between Annabelle Lee and the Telltale Heart, I was able to make the connection in my head that I was like, Oh, his shit's dark and I'm a dark kid. Mm-hmm. I wanna read this. So um yeah, and that's just kinda where like the love affair took off and I haven't read every single Edgar Allan Poe poem and short story, but I've read probably at least a good 15 or more of them. So it was really, really nice uh, recognizing a lot of things within the show, but then also being surprised by things I didn't know that I had to kind of look up and try to figure out too. Yeah. Telltale Heart. I know I read that in school and Mm -hmm. I think I read it by myself. There was a, I read a lot of Poe in school. Which I'm happy for. But it is kind of nice that there's at least one dark, creepy poem (laughs) that people have to read. Because, like, I like poetry, but some... I like inter... Well, that sounds mean. There's a lot of poetry that's just very flowery. And it's very beautiful, but it's a lot of the similar things. But you get some, like, interesting poets in there, like Edgar Allan Poe, where they're really telling a story with the poem. Or, um, like, The Charge of the Light Brigade, where there's a story to it. And it's not just like, oh, my love, how much I doth love thou. You know, not that that's not lovely. But, like, I liked the ones that, like, had a plot to it. And that's why, like, I think Poe is more accessible to 
younger like people who are getting into poetry it might help them open a gateway to that um as opposed to like you know reading i love emily dickinson but emily dickinson has a lot of flowery stuff but she is lovely she also had a very dark life i'm sorry ryan you needed to say something oh yeah so basically i'm one of those people that i wish i got poetry but it's pretty much another language for me Mm. which was funny because like that kind of jumps back to whenever verna is like hey here's uh maddie here's some some clarity for you and she started reciting a poem i i got Mm -hmm. like two lines in and i was like no no continue following follow (laughs) follow and like i could not hold on it felt like another language that was going and i was like okay i think i have the basic gist (laughs) of what this clarity is but i have no idea and i wish i did because it's like you know it's this treasure chest that i can't unlock because i i can't figure out how the key works that's fair i think some of poe's poetry has a has a through line that you can follow but some of it is is like what you're saying a lot of rambling in a beautiful way i instantly i know you're talking about the city by the sea yeah and i was like as soon as she started reciting that i was like okay so instantly i was like it reminded me of kubla kong by samuel taylor coleridge and also uh it reminded me of Ozymandias by Pierce Bryce Shelley. Mm. Just the idea that like civilization, like even even the mighty can fall is essentially like death can touch anything. Death can touch the the highest of the highs. Like nothing can escape death. And so, but see, I'm a poet person. Like that's that's I'm a I'm a poetry person. So that's where I was just like, I I love hearing like how you feel about that, Ryan, because like things that I didn't get. Like, you're telling me, like, yeah, the kids are having to communicate with him the way they're having to communicate with him. So you are able to make the jump scares make sense for me. But then you're like, I'm shutting the poetry thing out. And I'm like, oh, I got that, though. So it's really kind of cool to hear how you're See, processing was... the show versus how I processed it. That was my favorite part of, like, them reading poetry was The City and the Sea. Honestly, mm-hmm. like I don't, I don't know why it just was like I was like, oh, this is a lovely little poem to listen to. Oh, that's so lovely. That was great. <laughs> so that that makes kind of a good segue for what um, a section that I'm going to call uh, moody music. Yes, where I have a series of questions for y'all. And so touching into that, uh, what was your favorite Poe reference in the series? Do you want to go first? You go first. Uh, Brittany's yeah. very excited. So I'll go. So I'll go first. Um, now, I never read the novel and the narrative of Arthur Golden, Gordon Prim of Nantucket. I know that's Poe's only novel. <laughs> I've never read it. But as you guys know, I love Life of Pi and the tiger in Life of Pi <laughs> is named Richard Parker. So I've known for years now that in the narrative of Arthur Gordon Prim of Nantucket, Richard Parker is a cabin boy that is sacrificed and eaten so the others sailors can survive so when prim says i'm i'm meeting richard or like he goes i'm having richard parker for dinner i lost my damn mind because it's like i'm having richard parker for dinner (laughs) (laughs) and this is the craziest thing so this book was written right 
And then, like, 30 years later, a fucking cabin boy named Richard Parker is actually cannibalized. So Poe predicted the future, too. Yes. Well, that's terrifying. Yes. Yeah. So don't name your (laughs) children Richard Parker. Maybe that's why they killed him. That's why they killed him. Because he was was from the future. He was already on the menu. Yeah. No, I mean, Poe, that's why Poe got murdered. Isn't that, like, fucked, but also, like, cool in a way? But it's just, like, the casual way that Pim says it. He just says that he's, like, I'm having Richard Parker for dinner. I was like, oh, my God. So, it's a very yeah, Hannibal Lecter sentence to say. Mm-hmm. Very Hannibal Lecter. My favorite was the cask of Amontillado reference. The whole thing, because it is... So, also, I went to Savannah earlier this year, and there is a body buried in the wall or there was i think they've removed the body but there was a body buried in the wall there and i was like oh so there's a real life cask of the montanaldo um although the guy supposedly was trying to murder this woman in her sleep because she rejected his marriage proposal and so she defensively killed him and it was the 1800s and women couldn't claim self-defense and so I don't know if she read the cask of the Montanado and was like, hey, that's an idea. But her son-in-law was a bricklayer and he supposedly helped lay the bricks anyways. But I always liked that story because it is like terrifying. There's also a reference in Haunting of Hill House to that as well. And the whole somebody being in the wall. There's a lot of that. The black cat has people in the wall too. Like it's it's a whole thing. But that was my favorite. And also the fact that Griswold was like in a jester's mask, which apparently is a reference to Hop Frog, which is a very sad story, but good story. We're like a, a little person who is a jester in a king's court, like someone like they try to beat up his girlfriend who's also a little person and they um he takes revenge by like burning them all alive so uh i was like that's fun um but i don't know i just loved the setup because i was like i knew what was gonna happen but i love that if you didn't know when she's like oh here's a sherry of a montanado and you're just like oh and then like when he just starts like i love the foreshadowing and oh it's great it was great. It was just a really good setup. As soon as like you, as soon as like Roderick walks by, you hear the jingling of the bells. I was like, they're doing the mm-hmm. fucking cask of Montago because I remember in the original <laughs> story, like he's haunted by like the jingling of the bells. So mm-hmm. I was like, yes, yes, the bells. Yeah. So and they did a good job like doing the bell thing without actually putting a bell on him. They're like, oh, he's wearing a jester's mask, so there's bells. Mm-hmm. Like they just had a very good like I knew what they were doing because I'd read it before, but like it was just interesting. Like when they're like, I'm listening, and I'm like, what the do fuck you, are you doing in the basement? Do you guys uh, did you guys think it was weird though for them to have like a costume party on New Year's? And I don't. Yes. The only reason I say that is because I've never seen the costume party on New Year's before. Yes. Yes, it would have made more sense. I mean, I've also never been part of a drug representative. Company. Yeah, <laughs> they do wild shit. <laughs> Having high alcohol. Yeah. In the eighties, I, I wonder if like they just—I don't know. I, I wonder if it was originally supposed to be Halloween, and they changed it to New Year's for some reason. I don't know. I wish it had been Halloween because it would have made more sense for me. Okay, so was it just me? Okay. No, I thought it was like why are they? I thought it was like a Gatsby party. 
because of the way they were dressed. Yeah. And then, like, when they show up in the, the episode where you find out what happens, and I'm like, wait, it's just a costume party on New Year's? What is up with that? I don't know. It seemed fucking weird to me. What about you, Ryan? What was your favorite reference? So, not having much Poe lore to go on, my original answer to the question was, if this isn't Poe, then the Telltale Heart being played mm. up in Vic's episode... I really liked how that mm-hmm. was done. Mm-hmm. And it was also very like low hanging fruit. Like, you know, Poe, you know, two things, you know, the Raven nevermore <laughs> and you know, the, the beating part. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That that's Poe. But then like whenever my uh, friend and coworkers, a uh, English major. And so we were talking about it and stuff. And I was like, so I don't know if this is Poe, but if it's, if it is, it's my favorite Poe reference. And he was like, yeah, that that totally is. But anytime, like, Roderick is reciting poetry Mm -hmm. and the fact that, like, his alternate life was he would have been a really good Mm -hmm. poet and, like, loved it and done well sort of thing. And so it's like he gets to be the Poe insert in the story going through. And so I I really enjoy it. Yeah, he's reciting Annabelle Lee primarily. Mm-hmm. Which is sad, because that's yeah. also Poe's last poem that he wrote about his dead wife. He also recites the raven, though, when Lenore mm-hmm. dies, which is, like, really sad, too. Lenore's I, I ghost was to... terrifying, but I, I liked her, because ha- she wasn't in your face. Sorry. Yeah, I uh, I have to agree with you on the Telltale Heart with Victorine, because, like, I knew the squishing noise was, like, I knew what it was, but then to actually see it and to know it was just, like, trying to mm-hmm. pump her dead heart, I was like, oh, my God, that's awful. Like, it's sickening. Mm-hmm. It was so sickening. I agree with yeah. you there. And the moment whenever, like, they're both in the living room and it's like, oh, you can hear it, too? Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, are we sharing delusions now? And it's like, no, mm-hmm. no, she's in the next that, room. Yeah. That is, that is tied with another one as my favorite kill. Because it's... Okay, yes. well, jumping... Because I had one of two ways of jumping to the next mm-hmm. one. We'll go ahead and do um, favorite kill. Okay. So minors... Ma- there are so many magical There are. They're, they're all really good, but my... I will say the first one, the Mask of the Red Death one, did make me, like, legitimately be like, oh, that's gross. But I loved Victorine and um, Dr. Ruiz. Ruiz? Ruiz, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. or Al. She calls her Al. It was so grotesque and sad, and just like, and I knew, like, I knew that she had killed her. I was like, oh god, she's gonna kill her with that. And then, like, you don't see it, and I was like, I really thought she was gonna kill her with that. And then I was like, oh, she. And Scott was in the kitchen while we were watching it. He was getting something. I was like, Scott, come back. She really did kill her. Come, come watch. And he was like, oh shit. Um, but it was just like it was so grotesque and like there's just all the blood everywhere and like her freaking heart just spread the open and she's ugh, ugh. yeah and the, oh when she hit her head and she was just gurgling oh yeah. it was awful but then the fact that Victorine just like stabs herself in the heart and her dad's just like ah oh uh. but and, and it was very accurate to the original story like I enjoyed that that was like oh I immediately know what story that's from. But Tammy, Tamerlane's Goldbug. I'd never heard of Goldbug before, ever. Um, but it's actually like Tamerlane and Goldbug kind of 
Tamerlane is actually the story that it's going by, but Goldbug is kind of the reference to. But Goldbug is like they find a scarab beetle and there's a cryptograph and it didn't seem like it followed it as exactly as the other ones, but the fact that like her house is covered in mirrors because she's all about appearances. Mm-hmm. Like, she doesn't have a functional relationship with her husband because she distances herself. But she wants it to look like they have a functional relationship. So she pays people. Also, she's a voyeur. Yeah, and she's a voyeur. And so she's yes. just watching. And then the fact that, like, she just, oh, and the, with the with the mirrors, like, just piercing her body. And I was just like, uh. And she sees herself in the mirror as she's killing herself accidentally. And she's like, I did this to myself. Oh, it was. And it was very pretty with all the green lighting. So that's probably, and I loved her green dress. But yeah, those were tied for me. Yeah, so those were my two favorites too, uh, because oh. <laughs> like the Victorine death was just horrific. Uh, and actually, the squelching of the heart is just awful. Oh. But Tamerlane's was also, so for me, the big thing about why her death was my favorite, because also the lead up to it was so horrific, right? Yeah. So, you guys know I'm a big I'm a big proprietor of secondhand embarrassment. Like that's what makes certain shows mm-hmm. like The Office. I love The Office, but it's hard for me to watch sometimes. So Scott's when talks. the curtain goes up and Tammy goes, "What the fuck are you doing here?" And poor little <gasps> Juno is like, "I'm here to support you." Like I was just like horrified. <laughs> like I was I like, Juno. "Oh my god!" Like this can't get any worse. And then she fucking takes the speaker and knocks Juno out with it. <laughs> I thought I magic, thought she killed Juno. The magic of Juno's comedy yes. through that to be able to keep you from like <laughs> not being so bogged down yeah. in her downfalls or thing is wonderful. Like whenever she gets her box and she's like, watch, mine's going to be full. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's just like, oh my God. But they, they held like it back dying. enough that it was still, yeah, it was very embarrassing. Also, like, okay, like, wait, we're... Do you think the sex tape was actually playing, or was that in mm-hmm. her head? No. Okay. Yeah, I think it was in her head. But the thing about the mirrors, too, is Tamerlane. So when we think about Tamerlane, we know, like Katie mentioned, there's the Tamerlane poem <laughs> where it's like he gives up his love for, like, the chance of success and glory. And at the end of his life, he regrets. So right before Tammy goes on stage, she's talking about how she misses Bill, right? So that's like mm-hmm. that's tied into her story, but Bill's also based off the story of William Wilson, where basically it's a doppelganger post story, where mm-hmm. it's like this guy like meets this boy named William Wilson, and it looks just alike, and they have the same birthday. At the end, he stabs William, he, he stabs William, but it's not William, it's Samir, and so he like kills himself, right? So you see that too, but taking mm-hmm. it a step farther. So, Tammy's mirrors in her house are also a reflection of her and all of her failures. So, Uh there's, like, this, like, triple layer to her death. So, there's, like, the Tamerlane poem, the William Wilson story, her failures reflecting back at her. And at the fact that Verna is just, like, just close your eyes. Just close your eyes and let it go. And she can't let go. Like... There's something just very, like Katie mentions, is very aesthetically pleasing, like the falling glass, mm-hmm. the green lighting, but it's also just the horror that leads up to her actual death. Yeah. I think it's, like, very intense, and I wasn't expecting to like that episode as much as I did, but I was honestly mm-hmm. kind of floored by the end of it. Also, how gruesome the deaths were. Like, Mike Flanagan has been horrific, yes, 
But, like, there haven't been a lot of, like, gruesome deaths. Like, a lot of blood. Like, he's usually pretty reserved. And this this whole series <laughs> was just, oh, oh, oh. Like. Which reaches into my favorite kill, which was Roderick and the pendulum. Oh, yeah. That was good. That was and good. the fact that they pulled it off. Mm-hmm. I was, like, because you have the title. It's the pit and the pendulum. You know that, like, they're going to have the building knocked down the wrecking ball sort of thing and it's like okay are you gonna have like the wrecking ball swing over him and Mm -hmm. get closer and closer what what are you what are you doing sort of thing and then like as soon as the bell rings and he freezes for a bit and then goes right back to the phone call i was like shit just happened yeah Mm -hmm. we are (laughs) we are we were hitting the the final 10 here and then just having it be a support beam getting cut mm-hmm. off with part of like the concrete on there was just so horrifying and her laying there with him as uh. he's paralyzed and just being like pliers were just too much yeah, yeah. <laughs> even i have a limit it was a lot and it was it was just so good and then just the the thought process of like starting off it's kind of a death by a thousand cuts mm-hmm. Because it doesn't go into him right away, and and it just slowly slices all the way down, mm-hmm. and it's just like that is such a gruesome way to go. And the the way that they were actually able to pull that off, I was like, bravo! Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my favorite kill there. I did think something was gonna happen with elevators though, because they mentioned that he's afraid of elevators, and I was kind of like surprised <laughs> it didn't have something to do with an elevator. You oh, know? but it's that the narrator in the pin the pendulum is claustrophobic. So that goes mm. back into Frederick being claustrophobic. <laughs> yeah, but I thought his death was going to have to do something to do with elevators. Like, well, it's almost, for some oh, reason. yeah, I get what you're saying. But it's almost like he's shut into at that point because what is it? I, I, what does he? Because it's whatever he gives Morella causes her like she's paralyzed. Nightshade. So, Nightshade. Yeah, so in Which a way, is it's actually like how Morella. The story Morella also has Nightshade in it, so. Yeah. But it's kind of like he is closed in, in a way. So it's like his worst fear because it is like claustrophobic. He's closed in his own mind. He can't move. Mm-hmm. Which is hilarious because that room is so big. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's all collapsing in on him, too. But I, mm. I think his death might have been the most satisfying because of how fucking evil he had become. And, like, Morella, the thing is, like, when she first lies to her fate, to her family's face, I was like, oh, what a, that's gross. But like, I was like, but she didn't actually sleep with anybody. She just went to the party. And I was like, so, and then I was like, you know what? She didn't actually fuck anybody. She just went to this party and she just danced. So like, I feel really bad that she's been hurt. But then the fact that like the husband just like is torturing her and, like, won't let Lenore call the doctors and won't let her stay at the hospital. And it's just so awful. And it's just, like, it's awful. And, like, and keeps her from talking to her own daughter. And so he's also torturing her and the daughter. And so I was like, you know what? Yeah, you should kill him. The one I feel like, the two I felt like probably, well, I guess... Prospero was kind of an asshole, but he was so young and stupid. Camille, I felt bad for because she didn't seem like a particularly nice person, but like she wasn't doing, I don't know. I felt kind of bad, a little bad for her, but she also took her death the absolute best. 
Leo, too, I kind of felt bad for. Those were kind of the only two I felt bad for, vaguely. So spinning off of that and talking about the um, Usher children, who's your favorite Usher child? And no, you cannot say Lenore. Mm. Who's your spread? Oof. Um, they all kind of like suck in different ways, but <laughs> uh, I, I have to go with Tamerlane. Not because I think she's a great person, but... And her head, like she mentions before, and Go Bug is obviously very thinly veiled for goop. Yeah. But it's like, she's like, I want to create something pretty. Like, she's like, I want us to be, like, about health and beauty and wellness. And so, like, is she going about things right? Is she a great person? No. But does she have, like, her own, like, what she thinks, and I guess that's, like, the argument with all these characters, is what they think they're doing in their head is right. But with Tammy, I'm like, well... At least she is trying to do, like, the health and beauty route, right? Like, I don't know. I don't know if that's really as just filed. Maybe I feel bad because also I'm the oldest daughter. I'm the second born oldest daughter in a family of multiple children. But then it's also, like, Tammy just is a little bit too much like her aunt in some ways, too. I think she's channeling Madeline mm-hmm. too much. And I just wish she wasn't. I wish she would give in. And just love Bill and not just put up walls, right? And I think that's what makes mm-hmm. her likable is that she has that she has that downfall where she does what a lot of us do. We put up walls around people that we may care about because we have to present ourselves in a certain way, right? And I think that may be what makes her the most relatable of the kids, just in my mm-hmm. opinion. I So Camille would have been my favorite except she died too early. And her her personality wasn't fully fleshed out. I think that's probably the reason I I can't say her. But Tammy's actually my favorite too. If I can't pick Lenore, because it it's a little bit of what you said, but also just her story was very interesting. Like the fucking like cuckold fetish she has is like I was like, is this really happening? Is this what's going on? Okay, all right, no no kink shaming. It was just an interesting way to illustrate her removedness from her her most intimate relationships. And it's like, is it her fault she can't have intimate relationships? Or is it her upbringing because her dad, you know, made them work for affection? I don't know. But it was very interesting. And then I felt really bad for poor Bill because Bill was just like, I just want to, like, I, I want to be your partner. But, like, he didn't, he was only doing it to make her happy. And it was just really sad and strange. And, like, I felt, and the whole thing with, like, she couldn't go to sleep. Which, that's the whole other thing with having sleep psychosis. Like, lack of sleep and going into psychosis is a whole other thing. But she was just very interesting. Also, I love that actress. She was, like, the best villain in Midnight Mass. She was so good. Yeah. And But yeah, it was just so interesting to watch. Also, y'all know how I feel about Goop, so it was kind of fun to watch a Goop-like mogul just completely lose her shit. Not, not that she should die, but like the whole embarrassing PR thing was pretty fucking hilarious. I did think she had killed Juno when she hit her with that mic stand. Yeah. I was like, oh, <laughs> was is that how Juno too. goes out? And then she's there the next day. I was like, oh, okay. Like, that was a that was a lot. It was a big old mic stand. She's it was on the painkillers. Yeah. Uh, Samantha Sloyan, by the way, is Tamerlane's yeah. actress. Also, I did want to say, I finally, I did not know this because Juno's, the actress, Ruth Codd, who plays Juno, 
is in a wheelchair in the only other thing I've seen her in. But, like, I was, like, she she mentions, like, her leg getting severed in the car accident. And I was, like, oh, that's an interesting, like, thing that they wrote in there. And I was, like, so I went and Googled her just because I was, like, huh, that's weird. She was in a wheelchair in this one. She was in this. And it's, like, oh, no. Like, she actually has amputated her leg because she broke. Oh, wow. Yeah, she broke her foot when she was 15, and it would not heal correctly. And it was causing her so much pain that she amputated it, I think, below the knee. So that is her real, like, leg. And I was like, that is so cool. Like, not cool that she had to do that. But it's cool that she's, like, it's not what makes her a good actress. But I think it's really cool that when you have, like, a lot of people with amputations, like, I think there's a big stigma about it and it's getting better and there's a lot of people like on social media that'll share like their stories about like why did I take my leg off if I didn't have to and all the good reasons I don't know I've found myself on that side of TikTok and it's very interesting and people are cool and brave and it's cool how they do everything but I was like that is really cool that they wrote that in so she didn't have to like hide it and she could just like focus on her acting and like he just did it in the most perfect way so yeah so if you see her with uh something that looks like a prosthetic leg. It's really hers, and I think that's really cool. And uh, I really like her. She was really funny in The Midnight Club, even though I didn't finish it. But, like, the first few episodes, she really stood out. So I'm really glad she was worked into this show because she was a standout in that show. And I'm I'm hoping... She's also a makeup artist, by the way. She, like, her other credits on IMDb is, like, makeup artist for a music video. And I was like... She just seems like a cool, cool lady. So I hope she does more stuff. I hope if Mike Flanagan keeps doing stuff on Amazon like this, she'll be in more of his things because, like, I like her. She's cool. But I thought that was a cool little tidbit, and I didn't know that. I'm glad I got to surprise y'all, too, because I was like, maybe I was an idiot who just didn't know this, but it's cool. But, yeah. Yeah. What about you, Ryan? Who's your favorite Usher child? Mine was definitely Camille. Just... Anytime ah. she was on screen, it was always a pleasure seeing Kate her. Siegel. Like horrible, horrible person, spin master. Um, <laughs> do you think I care, Tina? Oh God, I like I almost <laughs> forgot about her weird. I was like, why does everyone have a weird <laughs> sex thing in this? I'm, I'm, again, not trying to kink shame. It was just like I was like, is it just like a rich person thing? I guess too i think maybe that's what they were trying to illustrate but like she's also fucking her assistants and i was just like oh my god and then her assistants fall in love god bless yeah and she took her death like a champ she was like i had a good run yeah kate siegel is like also to me like unnaturally gorgeous like so it's like she's Mm -hmm. so pretty now not saying because it actually actually showed up in my facebook memories um uh, and I remembered it. So, like, me and one of my coworkers up here, when we both had really long, dark <laughs> hair, I was like, I never told you before, but you kind of like you could be a member of the Crane family. I was like, you know the long, dark hair? And she's like, oh, you too. I was like, oh, thanks. And she's like, that family was also haunted by ha- hotness. And I always think of that. <laughs> that family was also haunted by hotness. Haunted by hotness. Um, so, Kate Siegel, yes, very beautiful. But Mike Flanagan, yes. he knows how to cast pretty people in his shows. So, next favorite I have from y'all was your favorite reference that Vernon. I already said mine, but it's City in the Sea when she's uh, talking about City in the Sea. 
Um, and also her costume for the Mask of the Red Death. Mm. Because I love I love the visual aspect of the Mask of the Red Death. And I do think the first time I read it was in a book that had an illustration of it. So it's always been a visual memory for me as well. And then, like I said, in the Phantom of the Opera, the Phantom dresses up as the Mask of the Red Death for uh, in the Masquerade song. When it's whenever it goes da 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 and then he's just like, Hello, I'm ruining your party. That's what he's dressed up as. So don't watch the second one, but the first <laughs> Phantom, it's campy. It's super campy. But yeah, that's those are my two favorites. Yeah, I actually had City City by the Sea like uh wrote down as my favorite Verna reference too. Just because I love how like she kind of like she tells the ushers every single time what's going to happen, and yet they don't really listen to her. And so when she has this, like, great, like, she recites this beautiful poem to Madeline that basically just is like, hey, you're nothing, your time is coming. Death is coming. There's nothing, no amount of power, no amount of wealth. You can't escape this. And Madeline's basically like, what the fuck are you even saying? <laughs> <laughs> Like, I love that because it's kind of like, even in the face of, like, her telling her this is what's going to happen, Madeline is already working for that loophole, trying to figure out her next step. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think is even more brilliant when you think about what happens to Madeline later. Where Oh, my God. Like, Poor did Madeline. Anyone, did anyone find it, like, okay, so I'm sure we're both, we're all three very familiar with the House of the Usher, the Fall of the House of the Usher short story. So we're like, okay, we know that Roderick believes like Madeline's dead. But the fact that they took it a step further and it's like, let's scramble your brains and replace your eyes. <laughs> oh my God. I, like, I knew something was going to happen with all this mummy shit because I was like, why does she collect mummy shit? That's weird. There is a, there is a short story or a poem that has something to do with a mummy as well. And I don't think it came up until I was just casually looking at something so I didn't write down. Oh, did you find it? Don't bet your something to a mummy. Don't bet your brains to a mummy or don't bet something to a mummy. I forgot. There's Mm. a Poe Go on, Katie. I'm sorry. Yeah. But, but yeah. So it is a reference to to an obscure Poe thing. But, like, the fact that, like, I knew something was going to happen. But I didn't think... I didn't know he was going to mummify her alive, which it reminded me of the beginning of The Mummy, the Brendan Fraser one, because um, that's what they do to uh, Anak Sinamun and, um... oh, fuck, what the fuck is the mummy's name? Emotep. I, I am, Emotep, I can't thank remember. you. Emotep, yes. I can't remember if he really says oh. this or not, but in my head, Roderick is like, you're a goddamn queen. But I was like, yeah, yeah I think he that. says okay, that. He did say it. Yeah. He goes, okay. He says, you're Madeline Usher. You're a goddess. You're a queen. Yeah. Send you off like one. I'm going to send you. Yeah. I was just like, okay. And then I love that she just chokes him to death. And then the whole house yeah. falls. Yeah. It's fucking great. And poor, like, DuPont. I was like, wait, did he grab his recorder? I think he forgot it. Oh, fuck. I was no, like, grab your recorder. It. Okay, because I wasn't sure. Yeah, because like, at the end he puts it at the grave because he's like, oh, everybody, yes, you're right. everybody that like needed to pay justice has paid justice. So I yeah. don't have any need for this anymore. I'm a rich man. Um, yeah. My favorite Verna Jeez. reference was just calling out Trump 
and being like, yeah, he's one of my clients. Oh, that was funny. <laughs> Whenever she makes the quote about going down, what, on a fifth and shooting somebody and nobody's going to do anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, also, like, the the photos that they had of her with all of these people, mm-hmm. some of the photoshops were done better than others. <laughs> I will say, there was one or two where I was like, hmm, somebody was sleeping on the job in the tech department. But most of them were pretty convincing. And, like, it was, like, Brett Kavanaugh and Donald Trump and, like, all these people. And then, like, oh, it's getting older. Oh, it's getting older. It's like, oh, my God. And I'm like, so are all of these people going to get killed by Verna? Or do they all have different deals, deals with her? Yeah. Interesting. I thought that, was, she at one that point... was probably the most heavy-handed. That was the most heavy-handed. And that was a visual heavy-handedness. You know what I mean? Doesn't she at one point me. tell Roderick that he's, like, barely in her top five, though? Like, as the bodies are, like, raining from the sky, she's like, and you're not even in my top five. Or you're barely in my top five. So it's like... There's like men. No, a no, lot no. Worse. She's saying no, no, no. She's saying you are in my top five. You are my top There's five. There's more of a okay. positive, like you're like you're like that's pretty. You're pretty despicable because you're in my top five. Yeah. So, but dude, I did like, like the like, visual ooh. of all the bodies falling. The visual of all mm-hmm. the bodies falling and piling up. I was like, it was gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. They mm-hmm. actually did that as one of their protests in the art. They would take, like, body... They would take people... They A bunch of them would just lay, or they would, like, throw visual representations of how many people have died of opioid overdoses. So, I don't know. I, I don't know if Mike Flanagan was using that as a reference or not, but certainly... I mean, I think if you're in any kind of art circles or, like, any kind of circles, you probably would have heard about it because it was a big kind of to-do. Like, because they kept doing it in the... um in the museums in Manhattan, like all the art museums there. So, but I was like, I don't know if that's supposed to be one, but I like it. It's a good thing. So, but yeah. Wow. We've talked about this movie for like an hour and a half. So I do, I do have a space for final comments. For instance, mine is, uh, why the hell does Mark Hamill only have one Emmy? he should get one for this like he was just it was masterfully done his character him and like just the looming presence of the the family attorney fixer um his the way that he acted in court it was all like very small movements and like his little raspy it's so weird how raspy his voice is now. He doesn't need to project because his yeah. presence silenced the room. Um, and like doing the crossword puzzles in the in the courtroom, the uh, whenever him and uh, Carl Lum- Lumbly were in the judges chambers. Mm-hmm. We talked about this before uh, starting the episode and like he goes and makes the seventh seal reference and he's just mm-hmm. like i love Bergman. like i love bergman like yeah that's mm-hmm. that's great um and then just his whole scene with verna whenever he just like mm-hmm. yeah smoothly kills her wraps up the body she's over there <laughs> and he's like yeah this the is folk? something that uh i don't usually deal with let me apologize profusely i'm not gonna grovel 
but I am going to be like, you deserve, you deserve respect because you are definitely a higher being. I'm sorry yeah. I offended you. Just doing my job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's just like, oh no, it's fine. I'm, I, I think the reason he has a gun more is because Mark Hamill for a very long time in between Star Wars wrapping up and now and coming back to doing Star Wars has spent a lot of time doing voice acting, which doesn't get as much. That's what his one Emmy is in. Oh, but I mean, but seriously, but I mean, but it's, it's that voice one isn't a, as represented well in the public eye. Like they, do, they don't show represent. But he's yeah. in Whereas, one episode and it's like, but he's, he has been in so many other shows yeah. that have been fun. I'm like, I, I mean, need to see this episode. I need to see why this is the one that they're like, yes. It's not the episode of Pepper Ann where he's on now. it. No, hmm? he's my favorite. He's my favorite. He he was my first crush, celebrity crush. It was specifically Luke Skywalker. And then I saw Nina Jones and it moved on to Harrison Ford. And then I realized they were both older than my dad. And I was like, oh, that's awkward. But, you know, I didn't know that. I didn't have time perception watching that. But, you know, Luke Skywalker is my first crush. And then he was on the Batman series I watched every day as the Joker. And so, like, and he did a really funny cameo on Pepper Ann, which I talked about last week. Pepper Ann's on Disney Plus, uh, where he... (laughs) Milo thinks that he's the uh, Dorothy Hamill, the figure skater. <laughs> and he, like, stands in this line to get a Mark Hamill autograph. <laughs> and, then, and then he's like, I'm Mark Hamill, not Dorothy Hamill. It's very funny. And then someone makes a Star Wars reference. And he, like, gets his security guard to, like, get rid of him. It's really funny. Um, but, yeah, I think that's why. But I'm, I, I hope... I'm really I was really excited when I heard he was on this. It took me the third time he came on screen to realize that was Mark Hamill's part because he was unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. And I'm really hoping that he can continue to do Mike Flanagan work because I think he did a really good job and it was really nice to see him just act and mm-hmm. not have to be Luke Skywalker. And I I say that as an avid or the Joker. And beloved, or the Joker. But I mean, like, his face. You know what I mean? Because so well, many no, people... Because, like, in the, flat, in the CW Flash series, he plays the... Flash has a villain oh, that's basically the Joker. the Joker. And so he plays that trickster character. And he's, he's basically just really being... a really good Joker. <laughs> older, live-action Joker. <laughs> yeah. So. Which I just... I want him to just be able to act, because I think a big reason yeah. why he went to voice acting was because no one saw him as anything but Luke Skywalker. And I love Star Wars, but you know, Harrison Ford got to move on. Even mm-hmm. even Carrie Fisher, for the most part, got to do other roles and she became her own thing. But Mark Hamill was like, I can't, no one will cast me as anything but Luke Skywalker, so I think I'm just gonna like go sit in a booth and record some fabulous voice work for a few years. And... God love him. He's also like has a lovely social media where he just wishes people happy birthday and is super cool. So I'm really glad he was in this show. I hope he gets to do more. I hope Mike Flanning gets to do more. And I want to see Mark Hamill actually be able to act, which is great. I guess those are I mean, I just this was a really good series. And I think for my final thought, this was probably the best way to adapt Poe. Hmm. 
and the best way I've ever seen it adapted. And it is so dense because, like I said, every single character's name is some reference to Poe. I mean, you have people who are, like, obviously poems from Poe, but then there are people that are named after people that were in Poe's life, like... Um, Longfellow, uh, he had a, a beef apparently with Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, the poet, and so that's why he's named that. Uh, Rufus Griswold was an actual literary rival and critic of Poe's. I'm like, it is so dense and so well done. And I'm not, I love, I love all the Poe works that I like, but I do not continuously read Edgar Allan Poe. So, as someone who is maybe more lukewarm than red hot fiery burning passion of I lo- love Edgar Allan Poe, I thoroughly enjoyed it and it makes me want to read more Poe that I haven't read. Even though, like, uh, personally, going into research, the, the marrying a 13 year old still creeps me out. But you know what? Hell of a good writer. Not saying that's okay, but it's better and than I being do a like, xenophobe. Like you mean like H.P. Lovecraft? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. <sighs> there was something we were watching with Lovecraft. Oh, it was the Cabinet of Curiosities, one of the the witch's house one. And I was just like, man, it really sucks how big of a racist he was. And Scott's like, I know. <laughs> it's like, but yeah. However, I do think Edgar Allan Poe's works are interesting, and this was the best adaptation. It was like an adaptation of everything, and I. I realized this last week when I was looking up Haunting a Bly Manor, but he also did that with Bly Manor because every single episode title of Bly Manor is a different Henry James uh, mm-hmm. short story or novella. So I just love that he doesn't just be like, I'm going to take this one aspect of this author and only adapt the fall of the House of Usher. He's like, nope, I'm just going to throw every Poe reference in there and make it this whole beautiful universe that I've created. The kitchen sink. And yes. And yes, I think that's the best aspect of it, in my opinion. And that's why I really hope that he's doing the Dark Tower, just with the way that that's supposed to be mixing all of King's stuff together into a shared universe. Mm-hmm. He's He's got the chops for adaptation. I would love... I I would love for him to direct some X-Men stuff. <laughs> it's not going to happen. But <laughs> He's really more of a literary person from what I get. Like, he's a novel person, I think. Because all of his adaptations have to do with novels. But maybe. Can hold you never hope. know. <laughs> Write to him. He has a TikTok. Ask him on TikTok. <laughs> Britt. Any final thoughts? Yeah, um, I would agree. I think Mark Hamill was a standout. I also thought Carla was having the time of her life as Verna. Uh, I love seeing all the different versions of Verna. Um, I just love it. I think she's a phenomenal actress, and I'm so glad that like she, she's always kind of shines in every Mike Flanagan work. But other than Gerald's Game, where she literally plays Jesse as lead character, I love getting Mm -hmm. her seeing her just shine throughout this if you want like a series that's like scary and chaotic but also kind of like deep that you could probably go back and watch thing like watch and kind of realize something new every time i think this is definitely the series for you it's not as as i said at the beginning it's not as emotional as the other mike Mm -hmm. flanagan series or at least to me it's not 
But it's still a hell of a ride. It's a lot of fun. And it's, like I said, it's absolute chaos in the best way possible. Yeah, I agree with that. It's fun. It is fun, even though it's, like, grotesque and maybe depressing. It's very fun. Because, again, you don't love most of these people. So it kind of doesn't bother you as much. But they are still well-rounded fully realized characters because it's Mike Flanagan and of course there except for maybe Prospero he was probably like the least well-rounded is it Prospero or am I saying the wrong name no, you're right it's Prospero but Perry they, okay. he goes by the nickname Perry yeah I would recommend it if you haven't I would I mean I think it is up there with the Mike Flanagan works and one of the better series you can watch on Netflix and also it's only eight episodes mm-hmm Definitely one I'd recommend. Ryan, what about you? High recommendation. Usually whenever I go to refer horror stuff, I have three things. I'm like, hey, here's some flags in case you need to worry sort of thing. And it's uh, gore, animal cruelty, sexual violence. The gore, Mm -hmm. I was like, it's extensive, but it is nowhere near like torture. It's just like, oh, that's some really good special effects. Mm Mm-hmm. Animal cruelty was a bit much, but I also like that the thinking of the black cat specifically, all of it was an illusion. The Mm -hmm. cat, Pluto, didn't even die. Pluto was just out on the street. Whenever they panned up over that bathtub and it was empty, I was like, oh shit, it's not even happening. Mm -hmm. And, And like, it doesn't happen on screen but you get to see, like, there's a, a point to the gruesomeness kind of thing. Yeah. And then there's, there wasn't any sexual violence, as far as I recall. He doesn't seem to do that very often. Yeah. It might be alluded to. Like, we don't know if the her, their mom and her boss had a consensual relationship or not. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems kind of weird that he would just not talk to them. At all, if it wasn't something he was embarrassed about or could possibly get him into legal trouble. But any of that is alluded to. And I don't remember any sexual violence in any of the Mike Flanagan shows or movies. Other than Gerald's Game, which is an adaptation by Stephen yes, King. Yes, you're right. Yeah, That's you're the only right. one I can think of. Gerald's Game. Sorry, yeah. And the Gerald's Game one is pretty rough to watch. Yeah. But it's also... Something that happens and should be talked about because it is something that happens to people as children getting abused like that. And the whole point of it is processing trauma. So the one thing where he shows sexual violence is really awful to watch, but it also uh, has a point to it. And I guess that's a good thing about Mike Flanagan is I don't ever feel like he is showing us horrible things to make to just do it there's a point to everything and i think that's what makes him such a great filmmaker yeah and like even the animal cruelty it's like well it's a they're using it to illustrate how awful it is and also those were very obviously cgi monkeys so i was like oh thank god it was the one time i was like oh thank god that's not a real i'm sorry chimpanzee it wasn't a monkey it was a chimpanzee (laughs) but i was like oh thank god because you know, it would feel sad if it was a real monkey. Oh, chimpanzee. Sorry, I just... I know, they're different primates. A real primate. But yeah. I think that he's just such a good 
director and I just love I love that he loves to do horror and he does it in a way that scares you but doesn't seem like exploitative at all it makes you it's think lovely. and it also opens up like conversations too mm-hmm. and it's very like like emotional like like the whole hill house thing where it's all about a family and all of their struggles but yet it's not heavy-handed and it's not overly saccharine it's just like but it's sweet too there's some really beautiful moments in that that do bring tears to my eyes and yet i'm also horrified and oh my god there's a fucking ghost standing behind them under the piano that's the worst though it's one of the worst ones because he's creeping but i don't know he's just uh i'm a flanagan flanistan i think we all are we're all flana fans mm-hmm. but um i'm sad to see this era close but I'm excited to see what happens with Amazon. However, I'm a little terrified because I haven't read Wheel of Time and I have not watched the Lord of the Rings show. But I've I've heard mostly not good things about either one of them. But Ooh, then a small group of people. Well, no, no. You, I was going <laughs> to say, but a small group of people have had positive reactions. So I'm I'm nervous about Amazon. But also I like a lot of the Amazon Prime original series too like they've had some like the boys is great this yeah. will be, i don't know this will be another sidetrack but i need to give you some review on will of time like <laughs> yeah there yeah he's he's going to very capable hands i'm sure with having the backing of how his universe is done in netflix he's he's not going to have a a stall year than going into something yeah, he's, unless he does a film, hit, it, hit the ground running. Yeah, unless he does a film next year, which I'm okay with him doing a film because he did Doctor Sleep in between Hill House and Bly Manor, and that's why there's two years in between them. But I mean, I love Doctor Sleep, so I was okay with that. But but not a lot of people went and saw Doctor Sleep in theaters, so I don't know. So m- moving on to ratings out of ten, what y'all got? Oof, I would have to probably give this an eight out of ten. I think 8.5. It's just so I, masterfully done. I went 9.5. Mmm. And only because, honestly, or just off of first watching, the only thing that is negative is personal stuff. I want more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm in this picture. I don't like it. Like, why? why does this world exist that these people are able to get away with this kind of stuff <laughs> like well yeah the those are the those are the only things that i'm like you're pointing this out and i don't like it <laughs> so, yeah <laughs> but i i was just like the entire time i was into it and yeah it was excellent work it's fantastic it's a good it's show this was a f- yeah yeah go watch it and join us for another side tracks yeah. oh but next week we're going to be covering... We're, well, we're taking well, Halloween off. Time. Huh? Final Scroll rating. Oh, I didn't write oh, one shit. down for I didn't write tracks. one either because it's side tracks. <laughs> Whoops! Yeah. I guess right whatever your rating is, is the definite Grindhouse rating this week. Yeah. Well, I had a rated P for Poe, Pills, and Painful Payments. Oh, mm. nice. I like that. Mm. I do like that. 
I do like that. Yeah, I didn't write one down because we don't do it for sidetracks. <laughs> but I guess it makes sense since we it's an eight hour are only movie. doing one. Yeah. It is basically an eight-hour movie. Yeah. But I was going cash this week. <laughs> but yeah, we'll be taking off next week for Halloween because it would be too chaotic for us to try to record while children are at the door. Um, but the week after, I think we're doing Ryan's pick. To coincide with the Five Nights at Freddy's movie, we're doing Willy's Wonderland. Yes. Which Yay. is on Hulu, I do believe. Sorry. I had a moment that I was like, wait, I'm picking movies now. You did. Wait, wait. Yes. You did, though. Yeah. So with Five Nights at Freddy's uh, coming out, it should already be out. I think it's out now. I thought it was like 20, 28th. Yeah, I thought it was yeah, like 28th or okay. something. Week. On I thought Peacock I heard that it like changed its time or something, but yeah. Oh, maybe. So I'm gonna work and get this episode out for y'all so that you have it Halloween morning, Ooh. spooky day. And Ooh. so Five Nights at Freddy will be out. So we've got Willy's Wonderland, which, if you haven't heard, was not inspired by Five Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> it's not definitely a not. That's that's what the director no. says. <laughs> But then Nick Cage got so interested in it. He was like, hey, can I be in your movie? And it's just, it's an acid trip. It's hilarious. It's Nick Cage, y'all. Oh, Do, doing so, his best. So Five Nights so. at Freddy's actually releases this Friday, which will be the 27th. Uh, we're recording on Tuesday the 24th, which is funny because Five Nights at Freddy's on Friday. Like, that's a, yeah. a tongue twister. Yeah. I'll yep. probably watch it. Little compare contrast, but yeah. Willy's Wonderland is on Hulu and Tubi, and I think also Plexi, so it is pretty easy to access Willy's Wonderland. Yay! And if you want to watch Five Nights at Freddy's, in case we say anything about that movie, it's on Peacock and in theaters. But yes, I'm excited for that one. So I guess we'll see y'all in a couple weeks. And take care of yourselves and be good and go watch Fall of the House of Usher and every other Mike Flanagan thing on the planet um, so he gets more jobs. And thanks for listening and happy Halloween! Be safe and spooky yeah. and spoopy. And spoopy and spoopy, spoopy, spoopy. Uh, spay the new year pets. I'll always say that. Um, happy Halloween, friends. Stay safe out there. Go trick-or-treating with a buddy. And remember, if a kid comes to your door and no costume and a pillowcase, they could be doing a lot worse than asking for candy on Halloween night. Just give the kids some candy, man. That's, like, my opinion. Yeah. If you're a trick-or-treater, you're welcome at my house. We love y'all. Stay safe out there. Yeah. Oh, and don't blow your jack-o'-lantern out until the night's over. Unless you want Sam Use an to get you. Candle. Yeah. Use an electric candle. Ryan, any thoughts before we go? No, y'all, y'all got it all down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Love you guys. Uh, see you next time. Same spoopy time. Same spoopy channel. Yeah, stay yes, spoopy, stay spoopy, y'all. Bye. Bye. Bye, everybody. Bye.
The Grindhouse Girls podcast is a production by Katie Dale and Britt Ray. Our editor is N.R. Moody. All music used is royalty-free and can be found in our annotations. You can follow us on all of our socials. And if you have any comments, questions, or just want to say hey, our email is contactus at grindhousegirlspod.com. Thanks for listening.